Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, where we talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. We give you the inside scoop on building a startup, capital fundraising, the entrepreneurial journey, with both funny and impactful stories. This podcast is for budding entrepreneurs, ecosystem players, industry folks, venture capitalists looking for deals, students considering a career in the startup world, or anyone with a curiosity in Deepak. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tenemlaunch.com, or hit us up on LinkedIn. Let's build the future together. And now, on with the show. And welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Launch Podcast, sponsored by Tandem Launch, Canada's premier incubator. Today, I have a really big treat for you. Joining me today is Todd Graham, Vice President of Event Rock, and someone that I like to call the Witty VC. I hope it catches on. So welcome, Todd. <laughs> Thank you very much. So let's just start out with day one. You had a remarkable journey. Please share with our audience how you got from Halifax to Silicon Valley and found your groove. There you go. Uh, yeah. I, I like to joke in my life that I'm I'm conveniently Canadian, you know, in Silicon Valley that actually, for those who don't know it, there's just a mountain of Canadians hang, hanging out. You know, I was born, as you mentioned, in, in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and uh, had a very normal childhood there that you would imagine if you were imagining growing up in Halifax. And when I was a teenager, my family decided it was for my, my dad's job imperative that we, we make a move to, uh, to the States. And we ended up moving to to actually the Detroit area. And when I told my friends this in, in, in Halifax, they, they noted that I was moving to the Robocop city, which was an interesting ob- observation. But moved to the States when I was uh, a teenager and had always been a, a tinkerer, had always been someone who really enjoyed technology. My parents brought home a computer when I was probably six or seven. And I was always kind of the entrepreneurial kid who was running the lemonade stand in the neighborhood and had paper routes and employed my friends to, to to run those uh, with me. So in, uh, I always thought I would end up in technology. And in high school, I, I read a book called uh, Startup. Uh, and there's a couple of books out there named with, with that name at this point. But this is about the, the journey of the Go computer, which was the first pen-based computer. I think history is mostly now forgotten yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. But you know, in this book, it it talks about raising lots of money, building processors, building software, all the, the highs and lows of doing a startup. And ultimately, at the end, you know, the company goes under, people have heart attacks, people get divorced, it's just a total disaster. And I gave this book to my parents and I said, you should read this because this is what I want to do with my life. And I think that made them question some of their, their, their choices as parents, uh, and they, they did a great job. And so when I ended up at the University of Michigan doing computer science, I, I always knew that I would probably end up in in startup land. And after college was thinking about what I well, actually during college was thinking about what should I do next? And during college, you know, Napster and other music, uh, I shouldn't say even sharing services, you know, music stealing services were available. You know, there was this whole push to add digital rights management to music so you could control it and whatnot. And I asked a friend of mine, you know, what do you think they do? Because we were in the Detroit area in, in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. How do, you, how do you think the big three automotive companies protect 
protect their you know, car designs and was able to actually get an answer from senior executive at General Motors who said, like, well, we really don't, right, in a, in a digital form. And so that sparked in my mind an, an opportunity to go build a company to protect uh, sensitive data. So out of college, raised some venture capital. You know, this was late 90s, early 2000s. I, I like to joke that if you're trying to raise money in Michigan, uh, venture money in Michigan but during that time, I'm, I'm sorry, I took all 2 million of it. And, and obviously, Mich Michigan is a much hotter spot now for startups, thanks to a couple nice exits there. But long story short, built that company, ultimately merged it with another company out in California. So moved out to the Bay Area, did three years here, sold that company to uh, a company in Boston by the name of EMC, which is now part of Dell EMC. Moved there uh, to Boston because I wanted to work for a big company. And well, they told me I had to work for a big company now that they, they had acquired me. Did a period there and then back to the back to the Bay Area. You know, for those in, in Canada, you may appreciate my wife is from Los Angeles. And so three Boston winters was kind of where our marriage maxed out. So we had we had to head back to the, the warm area. That was a good move. Yeah, mitigate one of those outcomes from your startup book. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you know, real serendipity to be in the auto belt and then coming up with this tech car thing. Yeah, it was uh, meant to be. So then, so let's spill the beans, let the cat out of the bag. For all the entrepreneurs out there, tell them what are the VC patterns of decision-making and maybe some myths about how uh, VCs choose companies to invest in or dispel some myths. Absolutely. So I think that you know it's important to realize as an entrepreneur, there are lots of, just as there are lots of ideas for startups, there are lots of ideas for venture capitalists as well, right? And you're going to encounter different VCs that want to operate at different stages of, of companies, different industries. You know, like many things in life, venture capital quite often comes down to pattern matching, right? So you're a venture capitalist, you have a couple successes, you know, some portfolio companies have success. And naturally you look, you look for the patterns that, that drive that drive them. And so you will find quite often VCs who have had a success or two in an area will then go looking for a similar a similar pattern. I think that one of the myths that I, I hear a lot of is like, oh, VCs only invest in you know second time founders, which if that was true, then like how would you ever get anyone any founders? You know, VCs only invest in a certain age bracket, which is you know provably untrue. I do think that there are you know VCs who've been doing this for a while who know what know what they're looking for, and it's very easy, you know, once you've been doing it for a while uh, to you know, have your network of folks that you, you draw on. But I would never dissuade anyone from trying to start a, a company. I do think that, you know, venture capital can be irrationally efficient I think that you need to go at my last startup, we pitched a lot of VCs before we, you know, got a got one that wanted to invest and it being a, you know, a, a phenomenal investor and that led to a, a bunch more investment, etc. I think that you quite often need to find the right VC at the right time. You know, there are deals that I've looked at where I've been just heads down on other deals and, and missed, missed opportunities. You know, VCs are people too, and context switching is expensive. I do think that if you hear the same degree of feedback or the same consistent feedback from a whole host of VCs, sometimes that can be the market speaking to you. You know, there's lots of counterexamples. I do think the, the other myth that drives me kind of batty is that all 
startups have success, right? If you go into the media, if you go into, you know, pick your favorite website, uh, TechCrunch, any of these places, you know, you see effectively all day long funding announcements and, and exit announcements. And, you know, you'll quite often hear sort of a hero's journey that has occurred in getting to a successful exit or a successful fundraise. And there's always the moment where the company wasn't going to make it or there was some cataclysmic event and they recovered. But the reality is that the data shows us that, you know, between seven and eight out of 10 startups ultimately fail. And, you know, what surprised me being relatively, well, actually very naive when I was first acquired by EMC, you know, I had this vision that large companies operated, you know, in a highly strategic manner and that every M&A move was like fought out months and years in advance. And the reality is I can probably classify corporate M&A into, into three categories. Like the first is actually strategic and thoughtful. The second is an aqua hire where, you know, you got doll, you know, you, you basically hired people and paid back the VCs, but the return was not, you know, super successful. Like, you know, people are still working for a living in that scenario. Uh, and the third is like, no one could convince a senior executive that they had a bad idea. And so you had to go acquire some, some company to satisfy satisfy their needs. And so I think that people need to get into startup land with a fair set of expectations that just because you have this reinforcing mechanism all day long of you know, success, 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 that success may in fact not be as real as one might imply. And you know, there are very few websites that people go to on a regular basis that celebrate the failure mode that most, the, the majority of startups end up in. Yeah. Yeah. The, the garbage pile, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe somebody should invent that. Some people get that. Uh, but I also think like it's hard because your your garbage pile, my garbage pile, or whatever the compost pile, whatever we want to call it, to be to be you know sort of in, <laughs> the, in the moment, right? Right. Those like, you know, those are folks that that had an idea that put their heart and soul into it, right? And you know, my most recent startup was not a success, and there was this moment when you know it's shutting down, and you're like looking at the code repository, and you're like, oh my god gosh, we spent thousands of hours, quite often like late nights, early mornings, like we sacrificed, you know, family and friends engagements. And like, now we're just gonna like never check in code again. And that's like, you know, there's a morning period that you, you, you go through in, in that. And, but I think you need to recognize that that's a, a, as likely an outcome, if not more likely statistically than, you know, popping champagne and, you know, flying on jets and, and having yachts. Yeah. I mean, things can change on the dime, right? People can Absolutely. Global pandemics, for example. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. So then what about, seems like we might have a valuation quandary on our hands. Can you tell people what is it and how are VCs and founders dealing with this? Yeah, I think that there's this interesting moment we're, we're in right now. And I'll speak specifically to, to sort of SaaS, you know, software as a service valuations, because that's where we're seeing things, I think, relatively di divergent from uh, the previous the previous baseline. You know, when, when the pandemic hit, right, we were seeing valuations that were kind of 10 times forward 12 month you know, earnings or projected earnings. You know, when, when the pandemic arrived and you know, some folks started talking about black swan events and what that all means. The question that we were asking ourselves was, well, what happens if SaaS valuations get cut in half? 
right? What if instead of 10x, they are, you know, 5x? Well, it turns out we've actually gone to 20 and 30x. You know, I was going through some models recently with a friend and, you know, large enterprises that do acquisitions are currently assuming, you know, based upon the growth rate, 20 to 30x, you know, 12 month forward looking revenue, which you know, for a Canadian slash Midwestern guy who's, you know, can be a little bit conservative on those on those fronts. And that's kind of the only place where I'm relatively conservative. But, you know, that can be a little bit su- surprising to sort of get yourself comfortable with. The challenge that I think entrepreneurs need to think through is you go raise a ton of money at an incredibly rich valuation, your metrics get out of whack with how sort of traditional acquirers are getting valued uh, on, on the open stock market. And so if you think that your path to an exit is to be acquired in you know, two, three, five years by you know, in, in cybersecurity, you know, in, the, in the olden days, you'd hope to be acquired by Symantec, McAfee, Cisco, you know, all I'll show my age here a little bit, Palo Alto Networks. And, you know, the challenge that you now have is a lot of those folks, a lot of them have sort of gone away or ended up in PE land, public equity, uh, private equity rather, they can't afford those valuations. And so, you know, you can't go spend, unless it's a highly transformative acquisition, and most acquisitions aren't viewed that way, frankly. You know, if you're going to go spend $500 million to buy a couple million dollars in revenue, like that trick only works a couple times before the public markets ask, what, what, what are you doing here? And so I think one of the reasons we've seen the rise in SPACs, one of the reasons that we're, you know, we're going to see a new generation of acquirers, like we need to see with like in infrastructure, what does Datadog do? What does uh, Snowflake do? Companies like that, that, you know, have richly valued stock, just like some of the rich, richly valued private companies, how can they go pull off a transaction? But I, I think that are we in a bubble or are we not? I think when you think about raising money as an entrepreneur, you need to think about what the end game is. And, and that's a, a divergent issue that we're seeing right now in, in, in the exit exit uh, via acquisition mode, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of conversations with some groups that like to acquire and, you know, the budget that they gave us was, I mean, the company valuations 10 times that. So how <laughs> this is not possible. And then when I'm talking with VCs and they're like, oh, well, so what stage are you at? Are you series A? I'm like, well, um, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what number do you think is serious? <laughs> well, I think I've stopped. I mean, I say that I've stopped talking in terms of, of stages. Um, and I, then, then I turn right around and, and use the term like series A or B. But I, I think the definition and expectation of the company milestones have changed pretty, pretty dramatically, right? A friend of mine quipped recently, uh, you know, do you remember when series A companies had revenue, right? And, you know, now <laughs> we're at a point where... Series, you know, to go raise your quote unquote Series A, you may or may not need meaningful revenue, right? A couple design partners, you know, may may may, may be sufficient and a, and a quality team. And you know, so in my mind, that's causing this interesting pressure to appear where traditional investors that are maybe later stage are now coming in earlier. You know, you're seeing private equity get engaged in like Series C, sometimes financing at least to get sort of their their place on the on the cap table. You know, you're seeing traditional later stage venture funds invest earlier and earlier. And you're also seeing this pretty wide divergence on, you know, what are valuations and how much money do you want to go, you know, do you want to go raise? 
at what stage are you at? Like I looked at a, there was one week where I looked at a seed deal where uh, really a pre-seed deal where the the founders were looking for under a million dollars. And then I also looked at a, a, seed, a, a seed deal with the same number of founders and the same progress and they were looking for $5 million. So, you know, that's the interesting play there. Like we're still trying to figure out where the equilibrium is relative to, you know, what what is a stage? What is an investment round? Yeah, definitely a quandary right there. Okay. So then what drives you mad about entrepreneurs and their pitches? I know you have an expression, something like uh, features masquerading as products, acting like companies <laughs> or something like that. So what is all of this about? Yeah, I, you know, the, the, the type of venture investing that I'm in, the firm, the firm that I'm at, you know, we don't do a high transaction volume. We aim for you know transformative companies that are going to be big. And we recognize that takes time and that takes care and feeding and that takes capital. One of the things that I see a lot of are perfectly fine founding teams, perfectly fine product offerings, but without a ton of runway ahead of them. I mean, the market is immediately limited. And so I like to joke that these are quite often features masquerading as as products pretending to be company, where it would be an interesting tuck-in for an acquirer to add a feature to their product, but you're probably not going to remain a standalone company. And, you know, there are lots of examples of companies that have had like larger plans where, hey, we're going to enter the market with this, this wedge. You know, again, my my background being security, you know, cybersecurity, one of the dominant players in that market today is Palo Alto Networks. And they started as they, they refer to themselves as a firewall helper. And at the time, traditional firewalls were really not aware of the applications that were that they were interfacing with. And so Palo Alto built this add-on effectively to your existing firewall. And then over time, they just captured more and more value from that market where they just then became the next generation of firewall. And so, you know, if you'd looked at them at the start, you would have thought, oh, they're just making firewalls aware of applications. The reality is they were like redefining what what the market was, which is you know pretty awesome. So if I talk to a founding team and that's their vision, that's far more interesting to me than like, hey, I've got this little idea and I want to go, I want to go raise money for it. I think we're because there's so much money available in venture right now, you know, we're seeing a lot of things that maybe wouldn't have been venture funded in the traditional sense get get capital. So, I mean, how do you, so, because sometimes we hear entrepreneurs should focus on one thing and don't, you know, come to the table with these pie in the sky ideas that you can't validate yet because the markets aren't mature and na na na. So how, how do you balance that type of philosophy with uh, two, two entrepreneurs who think just stick with my product because I can't prove like something down the future? I, I think there is a difference between having a vision and having a starting point, right? And I really believe that you need to have a large sustaining vision. At the same time, you need a place where you actually start that vision, right? And if I go back to Palo Alto Networks, because we've laid the groundwork for that one, they had a much larger vision of ultimately being the box that you use for network security. But they had to start somewhere and they had to have a wedge to get, you know, to get into that, get into that market and figure out what customers really value and how do you sell against that and how do you deliver that value. So I think there's a difference between seeing a small ankle biting problem and deciding that's the company you're going to go 
go build versus I see a large opportunity here. I don't know yet how to capture it, but I know where to start. And so as a as an investor, you know, I want to invest in a team that I think has a large vision, but is able to compartmentalize it into consumable, actionable ideas uh, that they that they can go execute. Okay, that's the perfect segue to my next question. So there's a saying out there, we don't invest in ideas, we invest in people. So how true is that? And is that the same as like indicating how important a team and founder dynamics are in VC decision making? So there's a couple questions to unpack there. I think it's very hard and probably unwise to invest in a team that you probably don't believe in, right? Like as a, as a VC, you are, and, and it, it cuts both ways. You need to be willing to get into a long-term relationship, especially if you're early stage, if you're early stage investing and you are taking a board seat and your intention is to you know, work with the founding team, which can be different than a, you know, a seed stage fund that or pre-seed fund that just, I don't mean just in a pejorative way, but you, know, you write hundred checks a year and some of them land, some of, some of them don't. That's very different than you know, I'm going to write one to three checks a year and work with the company for 10, 10 or whatever years. So in that scenario, it's kind of like a marriage or at least a long-term relationship where you want to like the people, you want to have transparency with the people, you want to be able to have hard conversations with, with the team. I think that each VC has their sort of own definition of you know what a a team looks like in terms of composition. For a while, you know, I think the standard issue startup in, in Silicon Valley anyway was like you had a business founder and a technical founder. Like you had the you know, CEO founder who could sell and you had like the CTO founder who could code. And that was the model. You know, we've seen a lot of success in actually having three co-founders where you have sort of a businessy strategy person, you have a, you know, execution oriented like COO style or marketing person, and then you have the technical person who can do that. So, you know, we, we look at it and think that's actually a pretty good model. I think that you don't need a complete team to go raise, to go raise money and to go get started. So, you know, the notion that you, you know, need to show up with a salesperson, you don't even have a product is is ridiculous. So don't, don't go do that. But I think that VCs, for the most part, want to work with people that they can see working with for a very, very long time. And that's that's just the, the reality of it. I think the idea has to be very good as well, right? Uh, this whole notion that, oh, you know, you can take a great team and a terrible idea and yeah. make it work is please don't go to that extreme. I think the takeaway is you need a really good team that's going to grind it out and you need a really good market opportunity. And then you need a healthy dose of luck. You know, timing a market is really hard. So team that knows how to stay in the water to catch the catch the next big wave is quite often what you want, as opposed to a team that wants to just go, you know, you know fire money everywhere. I do think the idea that, oh, you know, you need a you need to found a company already, et cetera not not true at all. I think that if you are first time founder and you've hit upon something really intriguing for a particular investor set, the most important attribute that you can have and express is a willingness to learn and a willingness to, to demonstrate flexibility as a, as a leader and as an entrepreneur. 
Right on. Okay. So lastly, tell us a bit about Benrock and what you're looking for right now and then how people can find you. Absolutely. So the first part is easy. Benrock.com is the website. And my email is Todd, T-O-D-D, at Venrock.com. Venrock, a uh, really interesting story, if that's your, you know, if you're mm-hmm. interested in interesting, interesting stories. Mm-hmm. One of the original venture firms, originally founded by the Rockefeller family, uh, hence Venture plus Rockefeller, Venrock, no longer a direct association with, with that family. We've been a standard, more standard venture firm for, for quite some time now. But the idea has always been, let's invest in early stage entrepreneurs, quite often before product market fit uh, has been established and in markets that have large opportunities. And you know, so our focus is typically on enterprise and consumer IT technology or you know, IT, as well as a sizable, probably half the team is focused on healthcare, biotech, you know, drugs, et cetera. My focus is enterprise infrastructure, cybersecurity. I think when you're an early stage startup, you, you really want to find investors that can be accretive to your, you know, your industry. So while Venrock doesn't have any fixed lanes for investors, like I'm free to go invest in kind of anything I want in quotation marks, I'm most comfortable with, uh, and I think I actually can create some some degree of value with entrepreneurs in the spaces that I've already been highly active in. So that's that's my focus. Early stage, as I mentioned, pre-product market fit, quite often two or three founders in a garage saving up for a dog is is not uncommon for what what we look at. And, you know, we're in it for the long run with entrepreneurs. So if we come in and invest, we're going to be with you typically, you know, board of the board seat or board adjacent for the, for the duration of the company through the ups and downs. I, I like to tell my entrepreneurs and, you know, my friends that are doing startups, you discover very quickly that the st- you know, your state of operating in a startup is just a state of either dizzying high or soul crushing low. And you will sometimes oscillate between those like multiple times in a, in a day. And having been a multiple time entrepreneur with, with success and failure under, under my belt. And by the way, I learned a whole lot more from the last 15% of the failure. It was highly unpleasant. I don't recommend it that you go seek it, but I learned a whole lot more about myself and how I operate and, and, you know, how I want teams to operate in a failure mode and try trying to recover than I ever have and just sort of like hitting the ball out of the park. Sorry for the sports metaphor. But you know, my my comment to my entrepreneurs that I work with is I always want to be your second phone call with good news. Like you can call whoever you want when you close that big sale. I'm going to be your champion there, but I want to be your first phone call when everything's going wrong. And because I've always felt like as an entrepreneur, investors don't always offer the most support when it can be most helpful, which is not like, I'm going to tell you everything's going to be okay. If you've screwed up, I'm going to tell you you screwed up, but we're going to talk about how you work your way through it and what do we learn from it. And so that's that's what I, when I talk to my entrepreneurs, I really, my, and my friends, I all when things aren't going well, because I think that's when I can offer the most, the most support. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm feeling thank all you. warm and fuzzy now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was... Maybe that was my intention. You know, it's 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 weird times. We need to sort of end on a on a warm and fuzzy note, like a virtual hug. Um, so thank you so much, Todd, for uh, joining me on this episode of the launch. And uh, thank you very much to our loyal listeners. Your time is always appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. And don't forget, everyone, if you have a technical background and you want to create your own startup, hit me up on LinkedIn, and I can tell you all the incredible opportunities at Tanum launch. Ciao for now.
Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. Why don't you subscribe to the Launch Podcast today? You can share the podcast, tell a friend, and follow us on social media. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tandemlaunch.com, and get in touch today.